All right, let's open with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and all of the uh, spiritual blessings you have in store for us this day. We ask you to please bless us now as we study your word. We uh, pray these things for your glory and for our own good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, did anybody not get an outline? Has anybody, everybody's got one. No, I don't know if we'll get to it. We get back to it today. Ignore, like I said before, ignore the stuff at the top about. Ignore me. Um, the stuff at the top about the uh, the vows. This was created in connection with the new members class I did elsewhere. So we're just working through the outline from creation down. So last time we left off, we talked about, uh, I threatened to leap into the confession on the covenant of works as we were talking about the relationship between Adam and us, the federal, that is the covenantal relationship between Adam and us, that relationship by which we are condemned for his sin. As we looked at Romans 5, 16 through 18, um, in our discussion of the fall, we had to talk about that relationship between Adam and us. And we had occasion to discuss a little bit about uh, the moral accountability of man, even though he's fallen. So we believe that the Bible teaches, and we've spent some time on this, that mankind, since the fall, is depraved, that he's corrupt, and in other words, in biblical phrasing, he's in bondage to sin. He's a slave to sin, as Paul puts it. And that, of course, has historically, and in our day, of course, and some of us struggle with these questions as well, uh, how can man be morally accountable to God if he can do nothing other than sin? And it's right around there, I think, that we, we left off last time. And I talked a little bit about how there are two different ways of understanding moral accountability before God. There's a very philosophical way of looking at it, and there's the biblical way of looking at it. And we should, we should, we should camp out on that for a few minutes and talk about that. Um, because a philosophical notion of free will and a philosophical notion of moral accountability uh, is very prevalent in the church as well as the world. So people tend to caricature, you know, the biblical understanding of of, free, of the freedom of the will, what's called Calvinism. Uh, you know, if man is in bondage, truly in bondage to sin, then he's a puppet. He's a marionette. He's not really accountable before God. And that premise is used to justify a very philosophical notion of human free will. So, we believe that the Bible teaches that man is, even fallen man, is and remains free to choose whatever he wants. Make sure you lay hold of that. 
we have a whole chapter in our, in our confession in the Reformed churches uh, called of, of free will. So it's an important subject and it's important to understand that even Calvinists and anybody who out there you know, uh, you know, disagrees with what they believe is Calvinism needs to understand uh, what we're actually saying. What we believe the Bible is actually saying. Fallen man is free to choose whatever he wants. Every person in God's universe chooses whatever they want freely. That is, they're free from coercion from the outside. So to put it in a gospel context, there's no one who wants to believe in Jesus who's not allowed to believe in Jesus from the outside. God doesn't turn away the willing. Okay? But we need to understand what human freedom really looks like after the fall. And that's because, and think about this, if human beings after the fall are free, they enjoy freedom of the will in the philosophical sense. And when I say the philosophical sense, what I mean is the person is virtually like Adam was before the fall. They're able, just as able to choose the good, to choose to obey God's laws and commandments, as to do evil. As free to do, good, to do good as to do evil. So that would, we believe the Bible teaches that was, that's, that state of affairs obtained for Adam prior to his fall. But if it is the case, as many believe, that fallen man is as free to choose the good as the evil after the fall, then a couple of questions arise. The first is, in what way is man fallen? Describe how man is fallen. If his will is as free to choose the good after the fall as it was before the fall, what way are we fallen? And something else is implied. If fallen man is as free to choose the good as the evil after the fall, then we only need God's law. We don't need a Savior. We don't need somebody outside of ourselves to come in and rescue us. All we would need is God to reveal his will, repent and believe in the law. Obey me. Why do we need a Savior outside of ourselves if... The, human, the philosophical idea of human free will is the reality. And the, the answer is we would only need God's law if the will were truly free. And when Paul describes us as slaves to sin, slaves to un, unrighteousness in Romans 6, that's something we need to t- take seriously. Free in free will is the antonym of slavery, isn't it? Freedom is the antonym of, of slavery. It's not a homonym, or a synonym, excuse me. So, 
we believe the Bible teaches that man is free to choose whatever he wants at all times. When the gospel is presented in this period of human history, human beings are free from external compulsion or coercion in any direction. The problem is, the reason why some people choose and some people don't choose to believe in Jesus freely is because of the condition of their heart when they encounter the gospel. And we spent a good deal of time last semester, term, talking about the parable of the sower, didn't we? Because the parable of the sower tells us a lot of deep theology on the subject of the freedom of the will and the bondage of the will. And I don't know if those were all recorded. I would just refer you to those. I don't know if we can take the time to revisit that and go through the parable of the sower. But in a nutshell... The sower goes out to sow, and he sows the seed, which Jesus reveals is the gospel. And it falls amongst different kinds of soil, which Jesus' explanation of the parable, especially in Luke, Luke's version, Luke chapter 8, the soil represent kinds of human hearts. You got your good soil, which Jesus tells us equates to a good heart. And then you've got bad soil, which he breaks up into three different kinds. But you've got your good soil and your bad soil, and it represents good hearts and bad hearts. So, that sort of forces us into one of two alternatives. On the question of, where did these good hearts come from? Uh, you're either, the situation is either there are good people in this world and there are bad people in this world. Some people come into this world with a good nature and some people come in with a bad nature. Or, as God is sowing the seed of the word, his spirit is making some hearts good and leaving some hearts in their natural state. And we saw how in the Bible, rocky hearts and stony hearts and thorny hearts, or thorny and rocky ground, are metaphors for an unregenerate heart. So, um, what we believe the Bible is teaching is that God in his grace and in his mercy elects to save some of those who hear the gospel and by a work of his spirit changes those stony and rocky hearts into fleshy hearts, into good ground to receive the seed of the word and to bear fruit. And the only other alternative to that that I can see is that first set of circumstances that must obtain, that there are good people in this world by nature, who encounter God's word and naturally just choose to believe it. And yet, there are other people in the world who are bad people, and they don't. Those are the only two alternatives that I can see. 
It's either God's grace as to why some people accept and believe the gospel. Or it is, in a word, merit. Merit. There are good people, and those good people will go to heaven. Or there are bad, and there are bad people, and those people go to hell because they're bad. Those are the only two alternatives that I can see in the parable of the sower, as, as presented, especially in Luke's gospel, where he includes that part of Jesus' teaching where he explains the parable in those terms. Jesus says, uh, the seed that lands on the good soil, those are people with an honest and good heart. So they either have an honest and good heart, the way God remade it in that moment by his grace, or they had an honest and good heart by nature. And then that leaves everybody who goes to heaven being good people, and those who go to hell being bad people. Okay. Any questions for clarification on any of that so far? So, on the question then, if man, I mean, this all, this all is suggestive of the premise that as we have seen, as we canvass the scriptures in Old and New Testaments, mankind is actually and truly fallen after the fall. And all the thoughts and intents of his heart are only evil continually from his youth up. Genesis 6.5 and 8.21 for that language. I was conceived in iniquity and brought forth in sin, says David in the Psalms. <coughs> Paul says we are by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. And so from the Old Testament and all its parts, prophets and Psalms, to the New Testament, parable of the sower, Paul's language that I just quoted, and other places, this is, that's a representative sample, not a comprehensive case. The Bible consistently represents man as utterly fallen. Still free to choose whatever he wants, however, the problem with man, as he exercises his will, is that the heart behind it is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah puts it. And so that, that heart, all the thoughts and intents of which are only evil continually, as it chooses in this world, in, during their life, chooses accordingly. The heart sets the desires. The heart sets the preferences. And so when you're encountering sin or God's law, Satan or Jesus, when you're presented with these choices, a heart in that condition, the fallen condition, will always freely exercise its, its desires, choose those desires, act upon those desires in the fallen direction away from God, towards Satan, towards Helen, and sin. Okay, so back to the question of, well, how does that implicate man's moral responsibility before God? If he is as evil and a fallen condition, as the Bible uniformly represents, then how can he be morally accountable before God? And that's because of this very philosophical understanding, a very horizontal, human plane kind of understanding of moral accountability. 
We need to approach that question not in the ter- way that we represent in the you know, human courtroom or in our personal relations. We need to understand these things as they are revealed in the scriptures. And so mor- moral accountability basically breaks down into two directions. Moral praiseworthiness, you could say, or moral blameworthiness. That's what accountability is. You're either being blamed or praised for something in God's court. You're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And the idea is that if man can only do evil after the fall, he's not morally accountable because he can only do evil. And keeping in mind this idea of the human heart acting, you know, choosing freely in this world, even the fallen human heart, keeping that in mind, we need to approach the question even more biblically and acknowledge that our thinking is screwed up. And we broach the subject of God's praiseworthiness, even though the scripture represents uh, God as being unable to do evil. He's, he can't do evil. Scripture says he cannot lie. The scripture also says, conversely, that the devil, when he lies, he lies according to his nature. In John 8.44. So that is the biblical way of understanding things. A being, a moral, ethical being, God, can be praiseworthy and is praiseworthy, and I would argue all the more praiseworthy. Because his nature, his character, is such that he can only do good. In the biblical way of looking at things, that makes God more praiseworthy than if he were a God who could do, who could do evil as well as good. Keeping that in mind, consider the devil again. Does he lose all moral accountability for his lying? Just because he's represented in Scripture as when he lies, he lies according to his nature. In other words, he can't do anything but lie. Even when he seems to tell the truth, is to deceive. So, the point is, just to, to wrap all that up in a couple of aphorisms, I guess, you could say that as God is morally praiseworthy for being by nature and of necessity holy and righteous and good, so too fallen men and fallen angels are morally blameworthy for being by nature and of necessity unholy and unrighteous and evil. That's the biblical way of understanding it. So a being that can only do good is more praiseworthy. And a being that can only do evil is more blameworthy before God. Not less. So, 
That's the biblical way of understanding it. The Bible wants us to praise God for his truthfulness, doesn't it? If you go through the Psalms, you cannot deny that. When it's mentioned that God cannot lie, it is praising him. Well, think about the implications on the human philosophy of free will for that fact. That God is held forth as being praiseworthy for being unable to lie. And the devil is held forth as blameworthy for being incapable of telling the truth. And man's in the same boat. Man's not in his own universe, morally speaking. He's in God's universe. And being fallen and only able to do evil, apart from a work of God's grace, does not leave him less accountable before God for his evil. It makes him more accountable before God. He's incapable of doing anything else. It's the being itself that's blameworthy, not just the actions. The actions just follow. The actions just follow. The thoughts, words, and deeds are the fruit of the wicked heart. And what does the Bible tell us? It tells us that man looks on the outward deeds. What does God do? He looks on the heart, the nature, the being. And this was brought out last time. We are going to be no more, we will never be more praiseworthy ourselves than in the hereafter when we cannot do evil. Okay, so on the question, and I doubt we'll get to the outline, and probably not get to uh, chapter 7 of the Confession about the covenant of works Um, but that's okay because I think it's important that we understand there are also some biblical and religious theological implications wrapped up in this human philosophical idea of human free will that most in the church don't think about if you depart from the biblical understanding of free will that everybody's free to choose whatever they want and that people only choose what they want. They don't choose against their nature. They always choose according to their preferences. The preferences are set by the heart, and if the heart is stony, rocky, thorny, that is fallen, it will always freely choose sin. You depart from that understanding to a very philosophical understanding that places fallen man in the, you know, with respect to his being before God, his freedom in the pre-fallen context of the garden, then not only are you denying all of this revelation we've talked about, about this condition of fallen man after the fall, but certain things necessarily are implied. And Christians need to understand that. So let's break these three of the implications that I can think of down into three kinds. All right, let's break those down into three kinds. One would be the judicial implications of, the, of a doctrine of the freedom of the man, of, of, of the will after the fall. So the judicial, also the fairness implications, and salvation uh, will become a salvation of merit 
we kind of touched a little bit upon that earlier. So what are the, a judicial implication, a forensic implication of a Christian or a church embracing a philosophical understanding of human free will after the fall? That man is as free to choose evil as he is to choose good. <coughs> Has certain judicial forensic implications. So we talked before about Romans 5 and how in Romans 5, 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul reveals the reality of our situation before God judicially, forensically, as a species, as a race. Paul says that we are condemned in that place. And if you're not familiar with that text, jot it down, Romans 5, 16 through 18. Paul says that we are condemned in Adam. Condemned in Adam. We talked about how the condemnation, if you're in a, any court that's just and not a kangaroo court, the determination, the verdict, occurs only at the end when all relevant evidence has been heard. Right? If there's relevant evidence that the judge knows about that the judge doesn't use before he enters his verdict, then that's, we call that a violation of due process. It's not justice. So, if the Bible's telling us that as, a, as the race of descendants from Adam, if we are condemned for his action in Eden, and we'll talk about more of you know, how, how we, why we believe that, and we'll get into covenant theology briefly uh, in the coming session. But for today, just relying on Romans 5, 16 through 18, the implication is that we are already condemned the verdict has been entered. The trial with respect to you and to me and the person next to you in the pews is over. Otherwise, God could not enter the verdict of condemnation. And we talked about the verb or the word condemnation uh, in Greek is katakrima. And that's not only the verdict, but it's also the imposition of the sentence. That's the word Paul uses. So, the, what's the point? The point is, if we instead, instead of believing the trial with respect to me is over before God, as to whether or not I'm going to get a verdict of righteous or a verdict of guilty before him, if that happens as I am born and brought into this world, before I have a chance to use my will, then with respect to me, the trial is over. If I, if, I look, if I approach this biblically, with respect to me and you, the trial is over. That means that what I do with my will is not relevant to my judicial standing before God. Because the trial's over. The trial's... The, the apostle reveals that God has heard all the relevant evidence in what Adam did on my behalf and entered a verdict with respect to me. If that's the case, and I say, no, the trial's not over, more relevant evidence is yet to be heard, and that relevant evidence is what I do with my will when God's, I encounter God's commandments, when I encounter the gospel in space and time, in the span of my years. If that is relevant before God with respect to my, a verdict with respect to me, then Paul's wrong. And that's your choice. So an implication of the doctrine of human free will in the philosophical sense. Where my, my willing before God will establish 
but in his court, the matter of the verdict with respect to me, then the trial is ongoing. The trial is not over. And if that's true, then how can God be just in entering the verdict already upon me before I was brought into this world? Now, I need to know if I'm being clear on that. Why do I say there are judicial implications, forensic implications with respect to whether I adopt the doctrine of human free will as it's commonly understood on this point of God's justice? Is everybody following that? I'm saying that because the Bible says the verdict was entered already, my what I do with my will in my span of years can and only ever only add lesser included offenses to the verdict of guilt already entered against me because of my representative Adam. Does that make sense? At least what I'm saying. A little chewy. Huh? A little chewy. A little chewy? Yeah. So I guess you could just do it with a Q&A format. Is the trial over with respect to every human being? If you say yes, because of what Romans 5, 16 through 18 implies, you're, you're on solid ground. If you say no, each individual human being born into this world will establish you know, the substance of their own verdict before God based on how they live their life. Then you're denying what Romans 5, 16 through 18 says. You're denying that you're already guilty before God. There's more relevant evidence that the judge must hear before he enters his verdict with respect to you. And then you're, you're, uh, you're basically saying Romans 5 through 16, 5, 16 through 18, when it says I'm condemned in Adam for his sin, that would be unjust. Yes. Don't you think that someone who disagrees with our understanding here would say, yes, of course you're condemned, and it's righteous for God to condemn you, but if you make a different choice later, God will reopen your case. Um, you could say that. You could say that. But I don't think that if that were the way God had set things up in his courtroom, that he would enter this term, that he, he would give this by his Holy Spirit, give this particular term for the apostle to reveal to the church about the final condom, verdict of condemnation that includes the imposition of the sentence. That's what katakrima means in the Greek. Because he still has to do something with that initial sin. Even though you may have done something better later, he still has to do something with that initial sin. He either right. has to forgive it or he has to condemn it. But we have to affirm the reality of it and the finality of it. Right. If there's God, now, we're not excluding God's program of rehabilitating a human race that's already completely and fully condemned in Adam. That's the gospel. We have a second Adam. We have a new Adam who comes and represents us before God. And his deeds before God and under his law are imputed to us in the same way that Adam's deeds are imputed to us. So understanding the gospel, it's important to understand Adam's representation. That's why we're spending so much time on it. But again, 
It is worth our time as well to understand some of the implications of the human doctrine of free will, the philosophical notion of human free will, and the implications upon what we are saying in the face of revelation, what we are saying. When we say the verdict's not over with respect to our guilt or innocence before God, relevant evidence is my human free will, therefore I can't have already been condemned before I came into this world. All right. Chew on that, as someone said, it was che- it's chewy. Chew on that, think about that. I mean, when I first thought about the implications about, of that, and what I had been thinking about human free will was denying the reality of that verdict, uh, I repented because I, I felt that I was impugning the justice of God and calling me guilty in another person uh, when, you know, my, my, my responses to his revelation by my will was what was relevant. But, in other words, the trial with respect to the human race is declared in Scripture to have been over when Adam fell. It's over. Trial's over. Now, it's just whether God is going to commute that sentence with respect to each human. And that's a very different question. But the trial is over. There's no more relevant evidence to be heard with respect to you and to me and the person next to you, your neighbor. So, that's a judicial implication of the doctrine of free will. Yes. I'm sorry. I don't, hopefully, this is not sidetracking us. One of the other arguments that is made by people who believe um, who believe that election is only based on God's foreknowledge, yeah, yeah, choices. We'll come to that. I know, but my what I was going to say that I think is relevant here is if the judge of all things has foreknowledge of the repentance that's coming, it would be unjust then to condemn someone. Yeah, yeah, arguably. And yet that is what the Bible tells And since the Bible tells us that we are condemned in him, that undermines the, the premise. So anyway, let's move on to uh, another implication. By embracing the philosophical understanding of human free will, uh, other than the judicial one that we just talked about. And one is the doctrine of fairness. You know how it's said that, you know, if God chooses who's going to be saved, it's not fair. Let's turn to Romans 10. Let's start on verse 10 of Romans 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him um, who, of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So we'll stop there. Now, we respond to the argument that you know God's not fair in choosing some to eternal life and others to eternal life, and, and not others. Um, but both camps on that question 
agree, if they're orthodox, that the only way a person can believe and be saved is if they hear the gospel. And that is the justification, the argument for the Great Commission, our missions out to the world, right? So, the reason we send missionaries out to all corners of the earth, especially today, we've got greater reach now than we arguably ever have had, as far as the, you know, the extent of our, the reach of the gospel. That being God's program for salvation, and there being no other program for salvation. In the human free will model of salvation, God has left untold billions of human beings to live and die through this world in their sin without ever having had the benefit of hearing the gospel preached. That they might believe, that they might exercise their free will. The Lord did not set up this program of salvation in such a way where his angels would cope the earth from the day Jesus was raised from the dead until now to make sure that every human being who lived and died in this world, forget about the ones who die in infancy, the ones that die in the womb, but that was not God's program to ensure that everybody had a chance to hear the preaching. By his disposition of his program of salvation, he has guaranteed that only a fraction of people who would live and die in this world ever hear the gospel because of the method he chose to reach them with the gospel. By human beings answering that call and going. However, the reason why we're still trying to learn unlearned languages and still trying to reach unreached people groups is because of this methodology that the Lord has chosen. And that has only gotten better over the millennia, but for 2,000 years, in God's own disposition of things, the vast majority of people who have been born and lived a full life and died in this world have done so without having heard the gospel. So, I think that presents a serious problem, an implication for the doctrine of free will. If God's program of salvation is not to save his elect among every tongue and tribe and nation, by means of the preaching of the word and the Holy Spirit working with the preached word to save those elect few, none of whom are lost, but is instead a bare presentation of the gospel, and God can go no farther with respect to one than he goes with respect to another, then we need to ask about why, how, God would be fair in ensuring that only a fraction of his human creation would ever hear the saving message of of Jesus Christ. It's the reality of this problem that I believe that drove Billy Graham toward, as he was reaching the end of his days to argue that you can be saved without having heard the gospel. That's not a direct quote. But it's driven by this doctrine of free will. Now, there are, question, are there questions for clarification on what I'm saying there? My read of Romans 10 is that you cannot believe unless you hear the preaching. 
and the preaching has reached the barest fraction of the human race, the billions who've lived and died, trillions arguably. Only a small portion has heard the gospel preached that they might be saved, and that has implications uh, on the free will model, on God's fairness that he has, in effect, elected only some human beings to hear the saving message that they might exercise their free will to be saved. So we believe that this being God's program for saving his elect, none are lost intended to be saved. But in the human free will idea of things, God intends the salvation of all to the same degree and no farther with respect to any individual than with respect to everybody else. Then why has he chosen to reveal the saving message to a small minority of the human race? Yes, That's right. So when people die, let's say a person dies in Papua New Guinea 500 years ago and they never heard the gospel, when they go before God, they're not going to say, hey, I had no idea about your moral requirements at all. And he'll say, I gave you a conscience and it told you what you were doing is wrong and you have no excuse. That's a very different thing from suggesting that that person can appear before God justified in Christ without ever having believed the gospel. And it's actually that notion that undermines the gospel. Some people say that Calvinism undermines the gospel because you don't need it, you just have election. That's not true. Election includes the preaching and believing of the gospel. It is the human doctrine of free will that actually undermines the gospel because of this, this idea that people can come before God being justified in Christ without ever having heard, having the benefit of hearing the word preached of Christ. Um, and I think that it's a, it's a tacit acknowledgement that uh, human free will as, as a principle in God's dealings with man, it's, it's, it's an implication there that uh, even Billy Graham and others have recognized, and it, re- and it undermines missions. It undermines the need for missions. If we really believe that you could just get to God out there without believing in the preached gospel, in this grammar given to us in the New Testament. Why do, why do we go? Why do we go? That undermines the gospel. The need for missions. So one last implication. Chew on that too. We've got one minute for the last implication, and that is it merit. And I'll just use an analogy and we'll, we'll wrap up. We'll, we'll pick up next week and talk about it. But think about it over the next week. The analogy is, as we talk about how a human philosophical uh, uh, model of salvation that includes this human philosophical free will idea. uh, Implies salvation by merit. 
and I'll, like I said, I'll use an analogy. Let's say you've got two guys. Let's say they're brothers from the same womb, same upbringing. They wind up buying houses next to each other. Later on in life, a fire breaks out, and both houses begin to be consumed by this fire. Okay, you with me on that? Two brothers, two houses, neighbors. Houses begin to burn down. And both of them wake up, and they're informed of the situation, that their houses are on fire and their lives are in peril. Let's pretend you hear about this on the news. And the first brother, realizing he's, his peril, reaches out, picks up the phone, calls 911 to be saved from the flames. His, his brother, who's his neighbor, realizes he's in peril. He's surrounded with flames and smoke. And he makes the decision to go back to sleep. If you heard about a pair of neighbors like that, what would you attribute the second brother's death to? It's not, I mean, the fire department was ready to save both of them. But only the first brother was saved. You follow? Both, the fire department was ready to save both, but only the first brother was saved. What does that imply about the second brother? What does that imply about the reason why one was saved from the flames and the other was not? The one was saved from the flames because he exercised better judgment, more intelligence, less laziness, whatever it is. There was something in that brother that resulted in his salvation, making use of the fire department, that was not present in the second brother. It was that lack, it was that void in him or the presence of something else, stupidity or laziness. So in a free will, that's the free will presentation of the gospel right there. God is ready to save. He's ready to save all. And he will do so if you just pick up the phone. Now the reason why some do and some don't in that model of understanding things has to be boiled down to the differences between that man and that man. Do you follow? That being the case, that salvation becomes a salvation of merit. It is either in the better sensibility, the better sense, the better intelligence, uh, and the one versus the lack of those qualities in the other, and the presence of a vice like laziness or sloth or whatever the case may be, but ultimately, salvation, this model of salvation boils down to the merits and demerits of those, the honest and good heart in the one and the rocky, stony, thorny heart in the other. That's what you're left with, a salvation by merit. And you could come up with a better word probably than merit. But it goes to, salvation becomes ultimately a question of the content of the character and the degree of intelligence of the person presented with the same saving message presented to his neighbor. Would you do that? I mean, let's, that's where analogies can break down. So just if, if we depart from that into something else, because nobody in their right minds thinks that I'm going to be saved because my neighbor believes. 
in the gospel. So that's where the analogy would break down. So it's an imperfect analogy like all analogies. But if you follow the point, and that is that ultimately there's something in that other brother that was lacking in the other that resulted in his death. Very much so. Anyway, let's wrap up there. Sorry, we went a few minutes over. Think about those, and we can talk about it a little bit more next week, and then move on. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and all of your blessings in it. We ask you to please help us to understand your word and to apply it. Help us now as we gather together to worship you, to do so in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things as well for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.